0: Life on Mars and the death of the Great Red Spot. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Perseverance rover is exploring its landing site on Mars since plopping down on the planet earlier this year. It's on the hunt for ancient signs of life and it's sending back stunning new images from its home in Jezero Crater. We'll talk with University of Florida astrobiologist Dr. Amy Williams about new data coming back from Perseverance and what the rover is uncovering about the aquatic history of the red planet. Then, another spacecraft around Jupiter is peering deep into its atmosphere and giving us the first 3D look of the planet. It's also shedding light on Jupiter's great red spot, which appears to be shrinking. Washington University in St. Louis, planetary scientist Dr. Paul Byrne helps us unpack these new findings and explores what it means for the future of understanding the largest planet in our solar system. From Mars to Jupiter, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. The key to finding life on Mars is tucked away in an ancient lake bed on the Red Planet. That's why scientists sent the Perseverance rover to Jezero Crater with hopes to find fossilized evidence of past microbial life. One of the scientists working on that mission and searching for these ancient signs of life is Dr. Amy Williams, an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. She joins us once again for an update on the mission. Dr. Williams, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Brendan. Appreciate it.
0: So before this conversation, you sent me a link to this incredible image taken from the Mars rover team of Kodiak Dawn. I'm looking at it now, um, but just describe it to us. It's beautiful.
1: (laughs) It is beautiful. And I hope we can share this with the audience in some way. So Kodiak is what we believe to be a delta remnant. So this is a, a butte of rocks that's left behind as the Jezero Delta has eroded away um, and so we're left with this gorgeous little mound of rocks that has the most exquisite patterns in it that tell us about the history of the flow of water in Jezero Crater on Mars.
0: Why is that so important? Why is it so important that we've, that, not we, this is, this, I had nothing to do with this. Uh, why is it so important that, that scientists like yourself have discovered this kind of evidence of, of water history? On Mars.
1: So for the past several, really decades at this point, we've been exploring a couple of different things on Mars. And one of those is evidence for water on Mars, not only the evidence, which we now have in abundance, but a way of reconstructing this aqueous history on on Mars, which is now this cold, dry desert. And so what's really exciting about, about this finding is that From orbit, we could tell that water at one point flowed into Jezero Crater as a river flowing into a lake. And we could tell that from orbital pictures of some of the structures in the crater, including this thing we call a delta. Now, what you can see from orbit versus what you can see on the ground is really just extraordinary. It's sort of like the difference between looking at the cover of a book and then reading all of the pages. When you get on the ground, you can look in this incredible detail. And so now, with the images that we've collected from Perseverance, we can actually, in much greater detail, understand the history of water flowing in Jezero Crater. And not just that, but it's actually told us a bit about um, these flooding events that have occurred in the crater as well. So it wasn't just this uh, quiescent, nice river flowing into this lake. There were actually episodes of of fairly substantial flooding. And so you can almost picture an Earth like environment where these kinds of dynamic processes are occurring, but it was on Mars in the distant past.
0: Did I just learn a new word? Did you say aqueous history? Did I say it right? Aqueous history. Yes. Yeah. I would
1: (laughs) I I think perhaps there's yeah, other pronunciations. I would call it aqueous history, just meaning the history of water influencing the environment.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So, so I'm looking at this image and, and there's, this, there's this mound here and there's these kind of areas of it with these kind of, it looks like jagged little rocks, but the rest of it is smooth. Is, is that what kind of told you about these different chapters in, in the, the aqueous history of, of Mars?
1: When you, when you look at the, the Kodiak uh, Butte image, you'll see um, there's a lot of material that has shed off of the side of, of the butte. And so this is you know pretty common in terrestrial geology. You have rocks falling off of the butte due to gravity, due to um, wind abrasion and wind erosion. And so you only get these little snapshots of the structure within uh, the butte itself. And so what's so compelling about this Kodiak image is we have these nice flat-lying layers towards the top. And then you see a really distinct truncation where there are actually angled layers underneath that. And those uh, sort of asymptotically um, flatten out again into flat-lying layers. And so actually that geometry is really distinct um, for the formation of a delta. So when the sediment is coming from the water and it is settling out onto the bottom of the lake bed, that sort of geometry tells us about a lake or a river that was prograding or moving into the lake system. So it tells us so much about this little snapshot in time that we, we have uh, discovered.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you likened it to looking at a book's cover from above and then actually reading the book. Um, now that you have Perseverance down there on the ground, taking these images and, and making these observations, was, was this a surprise to you? Did you expect to see something so dynamic uh, in Jezero Crater?
1: We certainly expected to see um, layers consistent with a delta um, in the lake. And so that's what we see at Kodiak. But I'll tell you what was really surprising for us was the discovery of these boulders in the uh, the delta fan itself. So remember, Kodiak is about a kilometer away from the rest of the delta fan. And so we've taken these long distance images and seen these boulders, you know, maybe uh, one and a half meters wide. They're huge. And so the discovery of these tells us there must have been these flooding events that brought these huge boulders down the river and they were deposited uh, in the delta. So this tells us more about the the climate on Mars, the uh, discharge from the river, or the flow of water, how fast it might have been. We have this entire story now that we just couldn't collect from orbital data alone.
0: And you get that all from just a few images from the surface, huh?
1: Absolutely. It's the power of geology.
0: So, so let's talk about why this is so important to your line of work. You are, you are an astrobiologist, uh, Dr. Williams. Why is this so exciting to you?
1: So as an astrobiologist, I'm interested in looking for the preservation of life beyond Earth. And it doesn't have to be plants and animals. It can be very, very small organisms, microorganisms, sort of like our bacteria today. And so one of the environments that astrobiologists want to look at for the preservation of these types of biosignatures or evidence for life are in very fine-grained sediments deposited um, in lake beds. And so when we see how this delta has flowed into the lake, how those sediments have deposited, that actually tells us about where those really small grain sediments are also going to be deposited. And it helps uh, us on the mission decide where to collect samples um, for the Mars Sample Return architecture, which is intended to bring these samples back to Earth for us to be able to explore with our whole suite of terrestrial labs on Earth. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so you're very interested in identifying um, possible pockets of of dirt to send back to to the planet. Here, is, is there anything that the rover itself can learn um, from from Kodiak? Uh, in this particular area of of the landing site, is is there something on board the vehicle that that you can use to explore this?
1: Absolutely. So part of the power of having the rover do um, sort of this triaging for us and help us understand which samples are the absolute best to bring back to earth because remember it's going to be you know a, a relatively small number of samples relative to how much you know all of us planetary scientists would love to have um, so Perseverance has this suite of instruments meant to characterize these rocks that we're exploring. So we can can look at the elemental abundances and the composition of these rocks using a a suite of the instruments. So we have the SuperCam instrument, we have the Pixel instrument, and we have the Sherlock instrument, in addition to a, a suite of incredible cameras. And so all of this information together can tell us about the absolute best place to collect these samples. We can look at what what elements and minerals are present, what organic molecules are actually present uh, in the surface and the near subsurface when we take these samples. And so this is all sort of the astrobiologist's toolbox to decide this is such an ideal location where if there were life in this region and it were preserved in these layers, this would be the place to look for it.
0: Mm-hmm. And what particular things are you looking for? What what molecules, what compounds would you expect to find if there was life there?
1: So all life on Earth as we know it is made up of organic carbon. And so one of the, the really great instruments that we have on board Perseverance, Sherlock, is actually able to uh, see organic molecules, organic carbon. And so the... Presence of certain organic molecules can tell you that there was life present uh, in an environment. And it's, of course, never quite that simple, um, but you can use Sherlock to triage these samples to look for organic carbon and to help guide us in assessing whether a sample might be the best one for us to look for evidence of life um, when, we, when we have these samples returned. Now one of the other things we're really excited about, though, is uh, the search for something like a microfossil. So this would be really extraordinary, but it could also provide really compelling evidence for life beyond Earth. And so um, that would be something that when we get these samples back to Earth, we can look in extraordinary detail at these samples and look for these types of, of fossils. But these are the things on Earth that we use to identify biosignatures, looking at organic carbon, looking at microfossils, and those are the tools that we're trying to use to triage these samples for return to Earth.
0: Dr. Williams, is, is this the only place that Perseverance will be exploring? Um, will this Kodiak Butte be the last kind of incredible thing that, uh, that, that scientists discover on, on Mars? Or will there be more?
1: I am so delighted to say there will be so, so much more. Oh, good. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> good. So this this is just the beginning. Um, this is, so where where we landed, we have this really great view of the delta and the crater rim. We have this um, sort of, it's just a, a bonus to see Kodiak and to, to be able to learn about it and learn about the delta and lake environment in Jezero. But we're actually going to drive up the Delta um, to collect samples, to explore the environment more and understand a lot more about um, Mars's history and the climate. All of that information is recorded in those rocks. So we'll be driving up the Delta. We'll be heading toward the crater rim. Um, we have identified from orbit all of these really interesting little campsites that we want to explore. And so, yeah, we have we have um, quite a bit more of just our primary mission to complete. So there's, there's a ton of great stuff on the way.
0: Mm-hmm. And finally, I, I hate to keep going back to the image, but it's just, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm, I'm going to share it on our website, uh, wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Um, it was Jim Bell who, who works on the mask cam uh, shared it. Um, given what we know about this area, Dr. Williams, what would this have been like uh, when water was on Mars, would this be a nice place for me to grab a beach towel and, <laughs> and, and and hang out along the along the shores of of this ancient lake?
1: Yeah, I feel like you could have like a nice little lake house out here, so this would be yeah this would this appears that it would have been. Um, a very pleasant environment, except maybe the fact that you need to breathe oxygen. But beyond that, just um, small,
0: small details, small, small details. details <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: one of our instruments on the rover um, Moxie is actually able to generate oxygen from the carbon dioxide atmosphere. So that's a whole nother thing to uh, to discuss. Whether you could have your lake house on uh, Lake Jezero, but if you if you were standing there, you know, watching this this river flow into this lake. Other than the red atmosphere, you might be uh, convinced that you were standing maybe uh, in in a cold Arctic environment watching a river flow into a lake here on Earth. There's so many similarities between ancient Mars and, and ancient Jezero and what we see today in our kind of cold and dry environments, but where water is flowing.
0: That was University of Florida astrobiologist Dr. Amy Williams. Still to come, new findings from Jupiter could help us understand what's happening to its great red spot. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A spacecraft orbiting Jupiter is peering deep into its atmosphere, giving us the first 3D look of the planet – Juno is also shedding light on Jupiter's great red spot, which appears to be shrinking. Washington University in St. Louis planetary scientist Dr. Paul Byrne helps us unpack these new findings and explores what it means for
2: the future of understanding the largest planet in our solar system. So One of the things that we've learned is just what this thing actually looks like in 3D. We have a great idea of what the Great Red Spot has been doing, especially over the last few decades, but really going back hundreds of years, in 2D because we can see the upper surface of Jupiter. But what what really sets it apart now is that we have a good sense of actually how deep the storm goes. We've never really known what that value is in the past. The reason we know this is because the Juno spacecraft was able to acquire gravity measurements of the planet when it makes these close approaches and it flies over. In fact, two of the flybys went directly over this this storm, this vortex. And through some very sophisticated modeling, it's possible to unravel what the 3D structure of the storm looks like in a way that we've never been able to do before because you never had a spacecraft go this close to Jupiter before. And that is what we now know about the, the, the storm. We now know it's 3D shape for the first time.
0: Can you even walking back to what we did know before these findings what we do know now can you kind of paint me a picture of like what this storm is actually like you know from the surface of the planet Sure
2: so it's worth saying from the get go that this storm is a it's a storm it's a cyclone it's actually an anticyclone uh, but it is an atmospheric disturbance it's not all that dissimilar to the kinds of things we know as cyclones or hurricanes or typhoons on earth there are some critical differences. Uh, one of the things that helps guide and ultimately controls the fate of, of hurricanes on Earth, for example, is the interaction with the land. There is no solid surface inside Jupiter, so there is no role, equivalent role played by something inside Jupiter. Um, but the atmospheric dynamics are very similar. Uh, now, we still have a lot of unanswered questions as to exactly what's driving these storms. Uh, the Great Red Spot is simply the largest example of, of millions of individual small storms and big storms we can see on the surface of Jupiter. And we've known about the Great Red Spot certainly for well over 100 years through fairly good telescopes. Uh, but there's good evidence that we've known about it for several hundred years before then, really going back to the 1600s, when folks were able to observe, uh, observe uh, Jupiter and see this kind of splotch of red uh, in, the, in the Southern Hemisphere. So that's not surprising given the size of this system We know that this thing's been going for several hundred years. Of course, no storm ever lasts that long on Earth, but the energy involved is so much greater on Jupiter. We also know that the storm is evolving and it's probably dissipating. We know that that it's become increasingly or or substantially more circular over the last few decades. Uh, It it used to be a lot more kind of eye-shaped or egg-shaped, elongate left and right. Now it's it's, it's very obviously more circular. Uh, We know how fast the winds move. The winds move at around 100 meters per second. Uh, or about a third the speed of sand, and we know that because we can track how the clouds move and we, can, we know how far they've gone and how long they've taken to travel that distance. So we know quite a bit. We, we know, relatively speaking, its temperature compared with the, with the surrounding clouds. We know that it is fed by deep zonal winds that come from deep inside the planet's uh, interior, relatively deep inside the planet's interior. I mean, Jupiter is a phenomenally gigantic planet. Um, so we've known quite a bit. You know, We know that it's a storm. We know that it swallows other storms. We've seen it change shape uh, over the last few decades. We know that it's been there for many hundreds of years. We know it's probably dissipating like all storms eventually will. But what we haven't known is what does this thing look like in 3D? How deep, basically, do the clouds that make up the Great Red Spot extend into Jupiter's interior? That's something we did not know, we couldn't know, by purely looking at the, at the if you like, exterior, I was going to say the surface of, of Jupiter, the exterior of Jupiter is a better way of putting it. Okay, this might be a stupid
0: question, but like a, a hurricane here on Earth is comprised of clouds and water vapor and all that.
2: What is the Great Red Spot made of? So it's, it's basically clouds. What's interesting is we now know that the, the, the Great Red Spot extends about 500 kilometers inside Jupiter, which is still only about half a percent of the total depth of the center of Jupiter. Um, but of course, no storm ever gets You know The troposphere is really what governs how how high storms can get, how high storm clouds can get on Earth. And so these things maybe go up about 10, 11, 12 kilometers perhaps. You certainly never get 500 kilometers. The atmosphere on Earth really isn't that high. Um, but it's basically clouds. We know that the, co- the condensation depth, the point where, where stuff that forms gas at a certain altitude will suddenly form liquid droplets. We know that that, that depth is well within the total height of the storm, so there's a lot of new things we need to figure out in terms of the physics of how these storms work, but functionally they are clouds that are moving around, driven by principally the stuff that makes up the clouds in Jupiter's atmosphere, which is uh, most in Jupiter's atmosphere is helium and hydrogen, and, and you have clouds of longer chain molecules, things like ammonia and, and, uh, and methane and ethane, for example, but Principally, it's hydrogen and helium, and, and what we see in the and, and some water vapor, and you can see those clouds. They help define the uh, the shape and the size of the storm. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about those findings. You mentioned that we're able to actually see the or understand the depth of of this. How does that um, you know better our understanding of of this phenomenon that's
2: happening on on Jupiter? I mean, one of the basic questions we have is. To what extent is what we're seeing on the, again, I'm not going to use the word surface, I'm going to use the word exterior, but the bit of Jupiter or or Saturn or Uranus and Neptune, any of these giant planets, what do we see on the exterior? What does that tell us of what's happening in the interior in terms of the dynamics, right? So basically where stuff is moving, Uh, in terms of the thermal properties, what's the temperature and how does the temperature change with depth? And like I say, unless you have a probe, which we have from the Galileo probe, it's very, very hard to back out that information. Juno has given us this insight now that we have to actually work out how deep this, this the cloud deck is. Uh, in these two papers, uh, the Juno team has also reported on the depth of some of the big zonal bands of clouds, and it turns out they go much much deeper than the Great Red Spot. And what that basically says is we now have new information and new understanding of just how material is transported inside Jupiter's atmosphere. And the reason this is important is because it helps us understand basically why planets look the way they do. It helps us understand why are there bands. How deep are they coming from? How What are they carrying? What what elements and compounds are they full of? Why are they, the colours they are? And and all of this ultimately is going to help us understand planetary atmospheres generally, including our own, because we have storms that, on the face of it, don't look all that dissimilar to the kinds of storms we see on Jupiter. So, in other words, what we're seeing is a perfect example of how the physics are the same. Right? The fundamental things driving these processes are the same, whether it's Jupiter or it's it's... it's Saturn or Earth or or a planet orbiting the star. But some of the parameters are different. Jupiter's bigger, it's got no solid surface in which you can have storms dissipating. And so understanding what's happening in 3D means we have a much better, because of course now we have an understanding of what's happening in 4D, right? Because we've seen changes to the storm through time. If you take that to be the fourth dimension, now we know what's happening, at least in a snapshot in three dimensions. Now that means that we can put that into model and if we can replicate those findings with computer models, we can be fairly happy that those models are accurately representing nature. And then we can use the models to test other things. What happens when two large storms collide? What happens when there's more energy going into the planet or less energy? What happens if we want to model what's happening on an exoplanet that might be similar composition to Jupiter, but it's closer to its star, for example? It opens up all these new possibilities to just basically understand how planets work. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you mentioned that we can visibly see the spot is is changing, even even shrinking. Um, do these findings help better understand why or or, or what will happen in the future?
2: Yeah, I, I almost show you they will. By having an idea of what the storm looks like in three D, we can make estimates then for what the temperature, how the temperature changes with depth, what the various depths of which different elements and different cloud compositions are are interacting, and ultimately we can then. Like I say, once you've got the model able to recreate what we see today, you can then spin the model back in time and try and make sure that it matches observations of the great red spots, say, that Voyager or Galileo took in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, And you can then play the model forward and try and make some predictions for what's going to happen in the next few decades, which, of course, you can then test. By observing the great red spot from Earth, let's say, with the Hubble Space Telescope or the next mission is going to go to Jupiter, uh, NASA is right now developing the, the Europa Clipper mission, which is the mission that's going to go to one of Jupiter's four so-called Galilean moons, Europa, which we think might have a subsurface ocean. It's going to be in the Jupiter vicinity. The European Space Agency is launching a mission called the JUICE mission which is also going to go to Jupiter. These missions will, be, will carry cameras that can be used to They're not principally going to be staring at Jupiter. They're principally looking at these moons, but they're going to be in the neighborhood. They'll be able to go and observe the this, this storm up close for hopefully the next couple of decades. So by understanding what's happening with the storm now, and, and not just the storm, these other bands of clouds, uh, they'll just allow scientists to make much more sophisticated models to simulate what we see and then make predictions for what will happen in the future, including up to perhaps when the Great Red Spot may eventually go away.
0: Paul, I'll give you this opportunity to wax lyrically about this mission itself. Tell me why you love Juno so much and and, and what's ahead for, for uh, some of the findings
2: coming from this mission. So, Juno is basically revolutionizing our understanding of how giant planets work. And, and there's a bunch of reasons why this is important. First off, Jupiter is the biggest planet in the solar system. Understanding why it looks the way it does and what processes are shaping its exterior feed into our understanding of not just Jupiter, but the other giant planets, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. We're also discovering more and more of these so-called giant planets or gas giants in other planetary systems where these things, are, these are uh, so-called exoplanets are orbiting other stars. And so by understanding the physics and the processes that go into shaping Jupiter, we'll get a better, better understanding of not just Jupiter, but of these kinds of worlds generally, of which we're discovering hundreds, I think even thousands. One of my favourite discoveries of the entire Juno mission is that Juno carries, amongst other very capable, what we call particles and fields instruments, it carries a camera called JunoCam, which legend has it was added fairly late in the day in the development of the mission. And JunoCam has returned these most astonishing images of Jupiter, and they are just the most stunning, breathtaking photos, and they're artistic. And you can see clouds. And if you've ever, if you've ever had, you know, you take a black coffee and you put creamer in before you stir the whole thing up, and you can see how the creamer is swirling. It's the same physics that's stringing out cloud systems and storms in Jupiter, and it's it it, it looks they look like paintings. So go and Google JunoCam Jupiter, and just spend ten minutes going through Google Images. Just just appreciate that we have a spacecraft that's able to send us these pictures in this day and age. It's remarkable.
0: That was Washington University in St. Louis planetary scientist Dr. Paul Byrne. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Yet? stay up to date on the latest space news. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. You can follow the show at AWTYSpace or visit our website WMFE.org space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty and the show's intern is Maria Brissino. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.